its relationships and wanting the silent film to survive in a general sense. And film restoration is extremely important. And there are certain films that are on my hit list and certain films that are on James' hit list. But the important thing is that someone does them. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Fifty years before airports and towering infernos, the Johnstown Flood was a disaster movie extravaganza. I talked to Robert Harris and James McCoskey about restoring this 1926 hit and a few other movies you may have heard of. Plus, they put the knick-knack in movie history. I talked to Gary Lassen, who runs the one and only Stoogeum. You'll get more than a poke in the eye when you subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. So do that, and if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Certainly. Water laps at the top of a dam. The earth holding the dam begins to crumble, and in an instant, a flood forces its way through and toward the town of Johnstown, PA. 1889's Johnstown Flood was one of the greatest disasters in American history up to that point, killing half again as many people as the sinking of the Titanic. So naturally, Hollywood made it into a movie. 1926's The Johnstown Flood, creating a pair of new stars in Janet Gaynor and George O'Brien. The film survived at George Eastman Museum, and now two of the top names in film restoration, Robert Harris and James McCoskey, have taken on the job of bringing this special effects extravaganza back to audiences after nearly a century. With a period score by Rodney Sauer and the Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra, who you're hearing behind me. I spoke with them about this restoration, which will have its premieres this month, including one benefit screening in Johnstown. We'll start by letting them introduce themselves. I'm Robert Harris, and I'm a, uh, an archivist and love silent film. I also love a lot of sound films. And uh, James McCoskey, whose voice you'll hear in a moment, and I got together. We've worked on other things, but we decided to save the Johnstown flood. James, say hello. Hello. Uh, I am James McCoskey, and I've worked with uh, Francis Ford Coppola's company, American Zoetrope, as his archivist for about 21 years. And actually, that's how I found Bob 21 years ago uh, with Napoleon, since we... 
we share rights uh, with him. So together we've been partners in crime for a very long time. We, we both love silent films, as I'm sure you know, uh, and early sound, but we got into this for different reasons. Uh, James, because of where he grew up and mine from the history of the film. I grew up in an area, a community called Santa Cruz, California. And what the interesting thing about Santa Cruz was, it was uh, a place uh, just south of Santa Cruz, uh, San Francisco, excuse me, where it just started attracting a lot of people from, from the film industry. And it was in a time where Hollywood wasn't Hollywood. Hollywood could have been anywhere in the country at that time, in the mid-teens, 1900s. And uh, Santa Cruz found almost every... Uh, you know, from Chaplin, Tom Mix, uh, William S. Hart, Mary Pickford, uh, some of the key players uh, of the film industry coming coming to Santa Cruz. And this this always sort of intrigued me that Santa Cruz had a place in, in, in film history. And when I went to, to school in the UC, University of Santa Cruz, uh, I became part of the film program there knew very very soon that production wasn't my thing but i loved history and i especially loved the history that uh that surrounded the, sort of that local area uh and in, in the filmmaking history there and wanted to preserve it and that sort of got me to how uh, bob uh came to johnstown he said you know i'm working on a film johnstown flood and i said i like i have heard of it i this is one of the films i kind of was interested in it because that was made uh, in my community in 1926, and I would love to love to bring that back to Santa Cruz. So it was a, a film that you had not seen at that point. I had not, well, I had not seen it. No one had seen it okay. in good condition uh, for other years. than a, a bad 16 millimeter print that missed uh, that had the, the ending missing <laughs> uh, from the film. So. No. Well, that's the one that ended up on YouTube. Right. The only element, the only surviving element was at George Eastman Museum, and they'd had it for decades, and thank the merciful bloodstained gods, they made a preservation negative on it, a black and white neg. And when we checked with them and learned that they had the first five reels of original tinted nitrate, albeit with occasional decomp, uh, we, we just jumped on that. And they could not have been more cooperative. Yeah. So tell me about the process of uh, of restoring the film. Well, they they scanned in 4K. Basically, uh, well, they scanned the five reels of original nitrate plus whatever elements were necessary, the dupes for the final reel, which didn't exist in nitrate, plus a couple of uh, additional sequences lest they be slightly better uh, than the decomp that was showing on the nitrate and sent those files in 4k to James and um, James and um, his compatriot um, Robbie went through them and sent me as I recall an MOV file and that way I was able to start going through it, creating a continuity, which we do on every film, shot by shot, frame by frame. And um, from there, we realized where our limitations were, our problems were, what we were missing. And then we had to figure out 
how to solve some of the problems. The, the easy ones being things like short main and end titles, where you can uh, cycle them uh, digitally. But we were missing an intertitle, which we were able to pull out of a uh, out of a screenplay, and um, we've reconfigured it a bit because there was some one cutting error in the print, which I, I don't know if you or your listeners are aware, but every single silent film, like a lot of sound films, were uh, release cut in sections. And I can tell you as, as an example of the sound era, Lawrence of Arabia was made up of, I think, 32 or 34 pieces from um, music sections to titles uh, that were in various languages. But in the silent cinema, every intertitle was physically cut in. They were not in the original negatives. So you had your made and end titles, and then every intertitle, and then we'll add another piece of minutia. There were separate rolls of camera negative that were cut specifically for separate tinting. So you would have all the yellow tints, all the amber tints, all the blues, all the reds in separate rolls. So all of these separate units had to be physically cut together for projection prints. Yeah. And, and what, what was uh, excited about the Johnstown, uh, Johnstown here, uh, you know, even before we were scanning, you know, we had to search everywhere to figure out where, what the best elements were. Uh, and George Eastman House, uh, George Eastman Museum, uh, was the only place that preserved this material. Nowhere out in the world had better material. And usually you'll find a print here and a print there, and it's a patchwork that you had to sew these, these elements together to make the very best restoration. But here, George Eastman Museum was, was the place that housed the, the best material. And what was exciting for me is, and what no one has seen, it had the original tints that Robert uh, mentioned. And they were absolutely gorgeous, except for the last reel that had deteriorated to a point that they had to uh, make a black and white dupe of it before it deteriorated to a point. And so we had to replicate the, the tints for that last reel. But the first five reels were absolutely beautiful original tints. And the, the other interesting thing, because I, I think many people think of the silent cinema and old films as jerky and grainy and being problematic, um, the grain structure on this original print was so beautifully fine grain and velvety that we were actually shocked, even though we had handled other silent films. It was just beautifully made. Yeah. It looked like a print off the original negative. It was <laughs> in such great shape. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the film itself. Uh, why this film? I mean, the Johnstown flood was, was big news at one time. From my childhood, yes. Um, the, the major point for, for me was Janet Gaynor. Um, Jeffrey Selznick was a dear friend, and he started the Selznick program at, at Eastman for, to train archivists. And the family was very friendly with Janet Gaynor. And one of the things that he brought up again and again was that he wanted to see all of her films properly rescued, restored, preserved. So in a, in a small way, this was uh, a means of honoring Jeffrey. 
and his wishes. And Janet Gaynor is extraordinary in this. She had a very short career, um, but what you realize in watching it was how incredibly talented she was. This was her first film, of which I'm aware, in which she really came up to an ingenue role. And it was after seeing this that William Fox decided we can do something with her. And within the next 18 months or two years, she had done Street Angel, Sunrise, and uh, Seventh Heaven, all for Fox, and then won the first Academy Award for Best Actress, apparently for all three films. Right. So it's quite an extraordinary situation. And if you look at her as a 21, 22-year-old, whatever she was in this film, and then you look at her later in things like A Star is Born, you see her, her comedic talents were quite extraordinary. And that's one of the reasons that I got into it. I did not honestly realize how incredible the special effects were in the last reel until James and I finally saw them. Right. And they, yeah. they I, really are akin to the Star Wars of their day. Yeah. We, I always knew that there was special effects because the, the articles written in Santa Cruz uh, in 1926 had mentioned the models that they had created. So there was a little, uh, they alluded to something great. But it wasn't until we actually could see the film to realize <laughs> right. they're pretty damn good. They they're better than Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> so well, there, no there offense, James Cameron, scenes. if you're listening. <laughs> there there are a couple of scenes early in the flood where people are running down the main street and there are wagons and carriages and people on horseback making a very sharp turn, and there are overlaid shots. And with people getting out of the way of uh, a composite shot that's being added to it. But people are being run over by carriages. I mean, literally, and getting up and running off screen. It, it's incredible material. And it's surprising no one was killed. Yeah. Not that that seems to have bothered people that much in the silent era. So it was a lot of stunt work in addition to models, as you mentioned? Yes, there was. Although the people may not may or may not have known that they were doing stunt work. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they were really stunt <laughs> right. kind of crazy. I mean the, the people. one that we know of the one that we know of was um, whoever was the stunt person riding for Janet Gaynor when her horse goes mm. um, yeah. over over on its head and I presume that it had been wired to do that, which is not one of the most friendly things in the world to horses, but you can see the poor animal get up and it's fine. So uh. we felt better about that. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that we learned from um, early trade ads is that several months before the production, they didn't know who was directing. They didn't know who the, who the lead actors were going to be and put in a list of people that never were in the film. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, a lot of this happened at the last minute, apparently. Yeah, so it's Irving Cummings directed it, who was kind of a house director at, at Fox at that time. At Fox, uh, correct. I've seen a couple of other late 20s Fox silence that he did, and I can't, of course, think of the names of any of them at the moment. But uh, 
Well, we we have found actually James found some audio interviews um, with George O'Brien where he talks about the flood scene and being in a water tank and people literally about to pass out from the from the cold and and he's you know helping the actresses and putting blankets around them. It was quite a harrowing shoot, apparently. Hmm. But we, we don't have a great deal of information, and the information that's published, um, as you know, sometimes is studio fluff, so we don't necessarily. <laughs> right. Well, well, we also know from the Santa Cruz, uh, from the newspapers from Santa Cruz, uh, this, this was a company, the Fox Company was well aware of the Santa Cruz uh, area because they had been making silent films there for the last 10 years at that point. Uh, it was the Fort Lee of the West. <laughs> yeah, it, it was interesting because uh, I don't know if you ever read the, the book, uh, Saul Wurzel, uh, who Saul Wurzel's, um was the guy for William Fox on the West Coast that was in charge of all the productions on the West Coast. William Fox never really came out to the West Coast. And he kept getting telegrams from, from Fox saying, you're, you're in Hollywood. You're, we bought the studio. Why aren't you making films there? Why are you sending out your crews elsewhere on location? You're, you're, you're wasting money. But they, they liked coming up to Santa Cruz. And Santa Cruz at that time was a very difficult place to get to. Uh, it was about, you know, now it's a drive. It's six or seven hours. But it was far longer uh, then and a little bit by train to, to get there. Uh, so it wasn't an expensive endeavor to get a, to get a, crew, a film crew up in that area, but they loved uh, to work in, in there, and they did it for about 10 years, so they were very familiar with it. What they liked about, uh, for Johnstown, was their working lumber camps. So in the film in Johnstown, you actually see a working lumber camp. That's not a, stage, that's a staged uh, camp. That that actually was a working mill at that time. It was the um, uh, Steen and Lay Lumber Mill in Bonnie Dune, California. Uh, so they actually had a working facility to, to shoot. Uh, they actually had a dam that they sent a uh, crew to that was just east of Santa Cruz. They hired the Santa Cruz Taxi Company to take their film crew out east towards Yosemite to film the dam uh, to get location shots. So it, it for for a, a production, it was it was quite difficult. Uh, something they could have probably have done in in L.A., but they chose not to. Now, besides the uh, lumber camp, did they use any of the town or anything like that, or what? Uh, I assume we see Johnstown kind of get washed away. Yes, and that's downtown. That's an area uh, called SoCal. It's downtown SoCal. The one of the buildings that is. Uh, demolished because of the floods uh is now a gas station but that that corner that you see in the film is still there you see one of the houses still standing that's there today um you do see up one of the lumber camps or the boulder creek the downtown boulder creek area shot of the people the townspeople running from the flood water so yeah there are moments that you get to see the towns and the town people uh being part of the film so what were the other challenges of the restoration? Well, the, the first, I mean, we, we, James and I go back to basics. 
before we really do anything. We want to know what we're dealing with, what the problems are, uh, what our tools are, what bits of film we can possibly find and put together. And in this case, it was zip, uh, except for the gem material. But the first thing is a continuity and figuring out where the problems were and annotating those problems. And then uh, apparently this was a print that was an early test print because we have a final tinting continuity which does not match it uh, perfectly, that has a uh, prologue of a couple of shots in it that did not end up in the final film, things of that sort. So it's a matter of figuring out what tints do we have on the print, what tints should they be. And in most cases, since they looked so good in the print, we left them. And the last reel, fortunately, was very simple because it was all lavender with a, uh, I believe, a yellow epilogue. So that was easy. But um, we have blues and reds, and, and I mean, it's, it's a beautifully tinted film. So it's, it's a matter of, of figuring out what things should be and then just kind of stabilizing your thoughts as you go through them. Okay. And so was this a big hit back in its day? I, I, I believe for the size film that it was, I don't think they expected it to be. I don't think it was a huge hit. It was basically a, a yeah. secondary picture oh, really? for them. It did, did monitor it moderately well. I thought the reviews were fine. But um... but it created two careers. Yeah. Um, was it budgeted You know, pretty high for a Fox film or more medium or... I don't know what the budget was. Do you, James? I don't believe we ever I never thought we dug that out, no. Okay. There are very few notes surviving um, from this era. And very few films because of the, the Harper's Ferry Fire. Sure. But um, it, it's, it's very sparse. We were able to find one screenplay and the tinting continuity, and that was pretty much it. And then the music. And we always go the, for, the music for papers. Survived. Oh, so there was existing uh, a full score or themes, or how, what was that? They had the there record of what yeah, the themes, the cues for each uh, section of the film existed. And Rodney, Rodney Sauer, uh, as you know, took that over and did a beautiful job with it. We're very pleased with what he and his people did. Okay. All right, so you've got this restoration with music. Now what happens to it? Well, that's up to your audience. I hope <laughs> that they will see it. Uh, um, you know, it is very hard at the moment to find a market for, for silent films. There's not, very few, there's not very many distributors willing to take the risk uh, to put silent films out on physical disc, which is our preference. Um, there is some great outlets for theatrical you know san francisco silent film festival portnoni and, and and a few places like the kansas city that program it but it's it's you know it's hard to find those places we also want to find a new audience so you know we we want to talk about the visual effects because that certainly i think would appeal to to people in the business today sure. of where it came from yes. um so it, it we're it, that's the challenge of finding that right hook uh, to, to to get the new people to say, hey, you know, from 
you're good at looking at films from going on around you today, but look at what was going a hundred years ago that helped you get to where you are today. Sure. From a purely technical perspective, all of the work was done in 4K. We're finishing in 4K. Um, having seen enough early films on disc in 4K, um, the feeling was that we didn't really gain enough in resolution to put out a 4K disc. So it will be Blu-ray, and you're going to have 95% of what's on the 4K uh, right. on the Blu-ray. And we have come up with uh, stereographs, about 75 or 100 of them, which have been converted to um, Anaglyph 3D, and those will be on the Blu-ray, along with a couple of hundred 2D photographs before and after the flood, inclusive of this wonderful area above the dam where, uh, where the gods were living. Hmm. So it's... Um, we're trying to put as much extra material on there as we can, and uh, people will get 3D glasses with it. Um, we are making a 4K DCP. We're having a preview at the Bedford Playhouse in New York on Mar uh, May 9th, and then May 28th, we actually premiere in Johnstown to benefit uh, Jaha, the museum there at a uh, newly restored 1926, I believe, theater in Johnstown. And after that, we have to see who wants to run it and what we're, uh, how we handle the Blu-ray, which we're definitely doing, but it's a matter of figuring out the, the details at this point. So are you working with one of the labels on it, or that's still up in the air? It, it's yeah, up, up in the, in the air. air. We've spoken. Okay. We've spoken to them. And uh, trying to figure out the best way to do it because we, we would very much like to be able to break even and uh, <laughs> sure. the plans are to go on to do more, yeah. in which we would also love to break even. That's the hard mechanic at this This is very much a, a matter of love and passion for us. It, it's not the area that I normally work in and it's not the area that James normally works in although we're we've both been working on Napoleon together right. uh, for about 80 years now um, <laughs> so you know th this this is kind of an extra and uh, kind of giving back to the industry is our perspective yeah and doing it for fans of which we are uh, part of that fan base. All right, well, let's talk about some of the other things that you've worked on because you both have illustrious careers in uh, restoration, not just of older movies, but of relatively recent ones, at least uh, recent enough that I can feel kind of startled that they need to be restored at this point because I remember seeing them when they came out. assuming you both worked on The Godfather in the early 2000s. We did. I both feel old and I also feel that everything is more precarious than I, you know, thought a moment ago. Well, the, the, you can make a generalization 
that, in, and it works two ways. It, it depends how something was printed, and all all films of 65 millimeter origination, every single print for the first 25 or 30 years were all made from the camera negatives. There were no dupes used. So Lawrence had about 135, 140 prints made from the camera negative. There were sections that uh, were from black and white masters. Sprocket holes were torn up. Um, and it, it splices started opening when we started printing it. Similar situation for My Fair Lady, which was strangely cut. Uh, both My Fair Lady and uh, Lawrence were cut in a uh, format called Auto Select, in which you come to the end of a scene and you may have a tail slate or leader, and all of what are called printer functions. Uh, fades and dissolves are added with every print. And if you're making Technicolor die transfer matrices, the matrices are made that way. So you have the negative running back and forth in the printer and the raw stock, the print stock, running back and forth in the printer. And I had thought that Lawrence was probably the worst that I'd ever seen until I started taking the camera negative of The Godfather out of the cans. And that one, and I think James will agree with this, is probably one of the worst condition modern films ever. Um, it also had been uh, cut and conformed for auto-select printing because the only time that it was run early on was to make Technicolor printing matrices. So... The, the negative in 1972 and 73 was really pristine. And then there was a picture called The Godfather Part Two uh, that came out the following year. And that was the last normal release in this country to be printed die transfer. And when that became popular, people wanted to see The Godfather again. Sure. And the original prints were rejuvenated, but then they needed to make more. And the Technicolor had given up their um, their printer, so they couldn't do it. And the negative ended up at Movie Lab, where they ran about another 50 prints off the camera negative, running it back and forth until the uh, one side of the perforation started going as they were printing from head to tail. And then they started printing from tail to head and timing changes uh, are actuated by notches, physical notches cut into the side of the film. So the other side of the film had to be notched and then splices started opening and uh, the entire first reel was taken to dupe and um, about another thousand feet of film went to dupe. So, um, the way that they finally printed it for 1997 was that it went to a company that was asked to recut it into A and B rolls. And interestingly, they used, and this is my perception, junk film off the floor or in little rolls sitting in trays. They used soundtrack negative, um, print. They used leader. They used anything that they could possibly find to fill in what would normally be 
brand new black leader. And while they were doing this, they didn't have a continuity, which is one other reason why we always have a continuity. And they, they just looked at, at etchings on the edge of the film to determine where fades and dissolves were. They ended up cutting all of these long lyrical dissolves to a standard shorter length and reformatted the film and then added an extra one for good measure. <laughs> that is on the original uh, DVD of the 1997 work. So this, this was about the worst that I've seen. And uh, we had a, a very hard time with it. And as you know, Paramount re-restored it at a higher bit rate few years ago, and uh, I was brought in on the beginning of that, and uh, they had the same problematic time, and they found some additional elements, and my hat is off to them for that. They put someone basically on it in the vaults full time, looking and found things that we were unable to find back in 2007, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I don't agree with some of their decisions, but I respect what they did. I've heard people say that the color timing is different. The most recent version, you know, just sort of goes to more primary colors and loses some of the the burnished, nostalgic look, I, I guess you'd call it. I, I use the word reimagined. Okay. And it's, it's their right to do it. They own the film. I would say it was a different presentation. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I think that if you looked at the original prints, you'd see that not two of the presentation. It's it's different. Okay. You know, I, I don't see that that color. I think that you know, and Bob and I will will, will, will we are very good. We at uh, never getting bent out of shape <laughs> these things, but you know. It, it is it is a, a different presentation, and that's rightfully what Francis wants. I think that uh, in some ways it could be more faithful to to what it was. But and Bob Bob was with Gordy, so you know it's it's you know both were I think different. Okay. And the 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 intent here might have been to find a more modern audience because it's there HDR. were those HDR didn't. Uh, didn't exist then. Yeah, so you have you to have HDR. That? So, but there, there were there were many people in 2008 when the Blu-ray, when our Blu-ray came out, who didn't know what the film looked like and and said, "Why does it look like it's all yellow? You know, why is the color weird like this?" Well, Bob, so, Bob will you know, Bob it, will know know this for sure. Godfather Two does not have a reference print. All original prints at that time were either trashed, there there was no good print. So from there, what is your recipe? It's in the mind uh, of, of Gordy or Francis that has to remember what it looked like or remembered 30 years, 40 years, 50 years later. Sure. Yeah, and we, we, we did have reference on two. Interestingly, the studio reference that was shipped to me early on back in 2007 so that I could create continuities turned out to be a drive-in print <laughs> with drive-in density, which was right. of, of no help whatsoever. But we, we did have eight or ten prints uh, from 
not the studio, but from the academy from UCLA, and they were all slightly different. Where two, two of the academy was dreadful. Godfather One was 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 probably the only thing that was helpful there. Well, we what we had on One was the original approval print that Gordy signed off on with his Technicolor cards. Yeah. So we knew that that was correct, although it wasn't perfect, and it wasn't perfect because there were a few shots where facial highlights would go a point or two cyan. The problem there being that to correct a shot or two shots in a reel, you've got to run the camera negative three more times and make new matrices. And at a certain point, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking and, and the uh, money is just being spent like crazy. So, so I and, think and the you idea don't want of to destroy the negative perfect. making matrices. Yeah. Something, the idea of getting something perfect in, the, in an analog world is just it's it's false. That's just there's a way to 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 provide that. So all these efforts are a close approximation of what we, we think uh, would have been wanted back in the seventies. Right. You know, of course, I've seen uh, Visions of Light, the documentary about cinematographers, and you know, at one point, uh, you have Gordon Willis talking about how the studio you know, was concerned about how it would play for the drive-ins with his, you know, Prince of Darkness cinematography, and particularly in Godfather 2. Um, so, yeah, what's a, what does a drive-in print of the Godfather look like? It doesn't have the rich blacks. But it's, it's thinner in density. I can tell you, um, when we were doing Lawrence, sitting in a screening room at Metricolor in Culver City, where we did our printing, um, with David Lean and Freddie Young, and we put up the second reel as you go into the desert, and the two of them are sitting there talking to one another, and I had done the best color that I could possibly do, and I thought it was gorgeous, and David is saying, it's not hot enough. It's not hot enough. <laughs> and he said, it, he said you, you've made it too pretty. And Freddie says, it's not hot enough. And it should be slightly more, more, more uh, mauve. And David said, yes, more, more mauve with maybe a point of yellow. Huh. And, you know, to, to sit there and listen to these two people who were on set, obviously. Sure. Um, you know, try and explain how they want the color and what you've done is wrong because it's too pretty. Um, you know, they, they kept saying it has to be hotter. It has to be hotter. And the concept in 1962 and 63 in theaters, there was a running gag that uh, concession stands would put more salt in the popcorn and they'd turn <laughs> up the heat in the theaters. But, um, it, you know, it, it's it's all... Very interesting, and there were no prints of Lawrence that survived because they were all Eastman color. Yeah. And not only that, all of the original prints of the long cut uh, had a problem with processing at Technicolor London. And Technicolor had produced a set of matrices 
of the 222-minute version, when in January uh, they went back and recut down to 202, and every single 70-millimeter print from the premiere run literally turned green and had to be replaced within about six or eight weeks. Hmm. So rather than charge Columbia to remake those prints, which they wouldn't have paid for anyway, uh, Technicolor ate the long matrices and made a new set of matrices of the short version. And they were never 222-minute prints made from the long matrices. And we're, we're getting into all sorts of tangents here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, your, your we're all about listeners that. might enjoy them. Yeah, yeah. I, of course, saw this... Uh at a theater with a nice big screen when it uh, came out again. Um, I don't know. When did you do the Lawrence uh, restoration? Lawrence, came, Lawrence, we came, it did it in 86 through 88. Okay. It took 26 or 27 months. David used to go to parties and gatherings and someone would say, how long did you work on this? And I would say 26 months or 27 months. And David would come over, put his arm around me, start laughing. And he says, I made it in 16. Right. So, <laughs> Well, you know, that's what I think you know, sometimes. Can, you hear about these restorations and so much more money went into the restoration than ever went into the movie in the first place. You know, detour comes to mind. No, the, one well, like the, the, the movie cost about the movie cost about 12 million. And we did that restoration for under a million. Okay. And that was all photochemical with 65 millimeter interpositives, which ran about $65,000, each. And I, I remember when we made the first IP, the negative at that point was starting to crack up. And I called Dawn Steele, and you can thank her that the film survives today because she's the one that approved it after her predecessor shut it down. And I, I told her what was going on, and I said, I want to make a second interpositive for additional protection, just in case. And she said, what is it going to cost? And I said, somewhere between sixty dollars and $70,000. And she just said, do it. So she, she was, you know, one of these studio executives who, who got it. Yeah. Tom Pollock was another one. Well, Tom Pollock was heading up Universal. Okay. In the in the 80s and into the 90s. And after Lawrence came out, he picked up the phone and called me one day. I didn't know him, although we had uh sold Napoleon to Universal back in 1980 late 81 early 82. I don't I don't think he was there at the time. I don't remember. But he called and said, uh, my wife and I went to see Lawrence. We loved what you did. Do we have something that you would like to do? Uh, you can think about it and call me back. And I said, don't need to think about it. Spartacus. Um, I'd love to do Spartacus. Right. And I brought... Jim Katz in on that, who had been heading up um, the classics division at Universal. And he was kind of a studio wrangler. And he was doing um, marketing and all the interrelationships with the studio and distribution. And I was doing the physical reconstruction and restoration work. 
And that was another one where we were missing a lot of audio. Yeah, so uh, that's certainly what I remember. The, you know, Anthony Hopkins sneaking in to dub Laurence Olivier in the scene that no longer had the oysters and snails scene, which no longer had its correct, original correct. audio. Well, um, he he did that in London, and um, Tony Curtis came into the studio to do his lines, and we had found the international track for it, which was the. Uh, just the the music and effects, so we had that part of it in six track stereo. This was an actual six track mix, and the way that we got Tony on that was we we realized that we needed someone, and um, we didn't feel that we had the right to just replace. Lawrence Olivier's voice. We 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 just wanted a nod, some permission. So I knew that Ann Coates, who had cut Lawrence, um, knew Olivier's widow, Joan Plowright, and I asked her if she would call Joan and, you know, just ask her if it was okay. And Ann called back the next day and she said, um, she didn't give me a yes or no. She said, just get Tony Hopkins. He used to drive Larry crazy by standing in back of him at cocktail parties and going into the St. Crispin Day speech from King Henry V. <laughs> That's good. So Jim, who had worked in the UK for many years, uh, United Artists, uh, knew his rep, called him, and did not get a very happy reaction. You know, you want him to do that. What, what's he going to be paid? You know, right. well, we can give him an honorarium. He said, I, I, I don't think he's going to be happy doing this. But Jim said, just please ask him. The next day, Tony calls giggling and saying, what What did Jones say? <laughs> <laughs> and um, the way that we did it was that Stanley directed him by fax from his car. <laughs> so it, it's it's... All of these little wonderful things come together. And it, it, it really makes restorations and, and uh, reconstructions, which are, you know, a lot of blood and a lot of sweat and a lot of tears and a lot of angst, a lot of fun at times. Yeah. You know, especially when you have to have to bring back the original people. Right. Yeah. I mean, for Lawrence, you did the same thing. I think Peter O'Toole and, and Arthur Kennedy – were involved. I don't know who, who else was. Uh, well, it was Peter. We recorded. We recorded him in London. Alec Guinness came in oh, in nice. London, and we needed someone to do to Jack Hawkins. And that was the one time that someone from the studio involved themselves and realized that Charles Gray had always uh. looped Hawkins, but he sounded nothing like him. Yeah. And we ended up recording Charles Gray. He came to the studio slightly sloshed, and um, <laughs> it didn't work. And we, we ended up having to take that sequence out of the film, even David, though David wanted it in, because David had to leave town and go to Cannes. Um, but who else did we have? We had Tony Quinn okay. uh, doing Auda, and we recorded him in New York. So we were recording people all over the place and, you know, just dropping the, dropping the dialogue in. Yeah. And again, you know, a lot of work, but great fun. 
right, so I'll get beat up on nitrate vilified. Don't ask about Napoleon. So tell me about Napoleon. Um, Who? <laughs> well, it's some it's short a, it's, a, it's a Ridley Napoleon Dynamite. It's a Ridley it's a Scott film. film. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a Ridley it's a Ridley Scott film that I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing. Um, who who is it? Is it Joaquin Phoenix? Joaquin As Phoenix. Napoleon? I don't remember. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully less ham, and, hammy know, than I'm, Rod Steiger. I'm I'm hearing good things about it. So, you know, what what would you like to know? And we'll see what we can tell you. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I saw that in Kansas City with Carmine Coppola conducting the orchestra. Coppola. And, yeah. Um, and, I was. Were you? If you were there opening night, I was there with you. I honestly don't remember which night, but. Uh, I, th- I think at it was the Midland. Yeah, at the Midland, exactly. Um, yeah, great, great theater. The one, the one that came out on a BFI Blu-ray is probably a bit longer than because yeah, I know five the, and a half hours as opposed to our four hours. Four hours. Ours is the Radio City musical cut, and then Brownlow. Uh, BFI is the Brownlow version that Brownlow has invested his entire life preserving uh, since uh, what it started as a kid. Uh, right. Uh, and and continued working on it, and I think the BFI version is the last version from the from 2000, which we showed uh, at the Ca- um, Paramount in Theater in Oakland, right? In Oakland, San Francisco Silent Film Festival. Uh, God, now I wouldn't say it was like last year, but it was now. Yeah, you know, the the difference, <laughs> right. and, and things get th- things get a little amorphous here because our Radio City cut was three hours fifty five. And the photo play BFI cut is something like five and a half hours. Right. Uh, so one would think that there's another hour and a half in there, but there isn't um, because of the speed differential. We were running hours at 24 frames a second, and we're now going to correct that because we, we have the luxury of doing it. We couldn't do it at Radio City because going after, I think, 11 p.m., we would have gone into... Uh, triple plutonium overtime, <laughs> which right. meant that that there is no way that we would not have lost money. Um, so now we will be running at the correct speed of eighteen and twenty-one frames per second, and our new cut uh, at proper speed currently runs about five hours and seven minutes, but that is subject to change. Okay. So what is your question about Napoleon? I don't know. I was just uh, interested to hear um, some of what went into bringing that back. I mean, it obviously starts with Kevin putting, you know, a piece that he found in a flea market here and a piece there together. But, yeah, what are some of the things that you had to deal with? Well, I, I got involved with the film in 1975. I was in Paris buying films, and I met with Abel Gantz and was able to, uh, I signed a contract for Jacques and Beethoven and LaRue, um, and then with Claude Lelouch, signed a contract for Bonaparte the Revolution because I was told Napoleon didn't exist in their mind. And the reality was that Claude Lelouch had made a major investment in Bonaparte, his ownerization, and uh, that's what they wanted to sell. And then a couple of years later, I was able to uh, go back to 
Claude and we got a new contract that allowed us to perform the silent Napoleon and that was based upon what existed in 1979 that Kevin and David Gill and uh, the BFI had put together. Kevin had uh, put so much money into it that he sold it to the BFI. Um, and we ran that initial print at Telluride with Abel in attendance, which right. was kind of neat. <laughs> and um, we ran Charm of Dynamite along with that, Kevin's documentary. And we then started making cuts, many of them uh, based upon notes that uh, Abel had given me and discussions that we had had because the, the American audience is different, I think, than the continental audience and who are much more forgiving, I think. But there is a character in the long version named Violine who was played by um, Annabella and she's a servant girl who keeps popping up all through the film and um, every time she shows up in my personal opinion she stops the film and I asked <laughs> Abel about it he, he kind of smiled and I said but why is she there and his answer and, and I need to be discreet here. Let, let's say that they had a, a small relationship okay. going uh, during shooting. And he was very nice to her, and she was nice to him, apparently. And there was way too much of her in there. And um, so I, I have taken every bit that I can possibly take of her out because the story of her having a shrine to Napoleon, you know, hidden as she is uh, Josephine's personal maid. And she's in love with Napoleon. And Josephine is in love with Napoleon. And the film just stops. <laughs> and it, it just seems to play much better without her. And that's the, 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 major, uh, the major difference. And that, that takes out about about 15 minutes. It's a big deal. So what are the plans for Napoleon at this part? You're working on the, the I don't know what you'd call it, the French Cinematheque version? or We, we, are, uh, we were working with them, and we are now uh, communicating with them and trying to work. We're working with all sides is the answer. Okay. We yes, yes, we're working with everybody. We, we have... We have scans. The BFI and Photoplay gave us uh, 2K scans from their uh, restored negative. So we have that entire version of the film, which we have uh, recut digitally. And um, our fine grain is with the Library of Congress, the one that we brought over in 1979. And, you know, we're, we're waiting to see where all of this goes. And um, it's it's a matter of time, and, and um, we'll see. There are certain things that we don't know at this point, but whatever it is, I think it's going to be very exciting, and um, people will hopefully come and see Napoleon it. Napoleon will continue reigning for the next century. <laughs> okay. Uh, hopefully, any, hopefully. Any idea of when this will be unleashed on the world, or is that your 
too deep in it to tell. For the French, I can't speak for the French. I don't. I don't know. I, I know they've had their own challenges with labs and and, and COVID and all that. Um, sure. For us and 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 the BFI, we love to get something uh, out as soon as as possible. But that is to be determined. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else that you want to tell me about anything you've worked on that I don't even remember that you that you did or anything like that? I'm not quite sure where to where to go with this. I mean, I, I that's, can an, that's another two hours, hours or yeah. three hours. <laughs> I, yeah, know. I can, I mean, I I can tell you there you know little things, relationships. One one of my dearest friends, and I I miss him incredibly, was David Shepard, and we knew each other for decades since the '70s, and we had a deal that if I needed anything that he had, no money ever changed hands between us. If I needed anything that he had, uh, I could have it. And the last thing that he gave me was um, Day of Freedom, the uh, the Riefenstahl short. Hmm. Um, and if he needed anything that I had, he could have it. And early on, I gave him our Gaylord Carter score to the general because we'd made a, a negative from MoMA's material. And one day, um, after I had had LaRue for maybe, I don't know, 15 years, and we had a problem with the film because Abel's original negative was at the Cinematheque and it was nitrate. Uh, original prints of Napoleon, by the way, were safety. They were diacetate, which your people might find interesting. Uh, LaRue, um, I had it printed. I ordered, because I had licensed it, a fine grain and a print for reference, because we had to translate titles and then look for other material. And when we got the material, the ending was missing, and uh, something that apparently Lengua did occasionally. <laughs> and the lab had printed about half the film through the base, so it was all soft focus. So I never did anything with it. And, uh, and it's one of those things where you just throw up your hands. And David asked uh, if he could have LaRue, which we had at MoMA, and I said, sure, be my guest. And that's where the Flickr Alley right. uh, disc came from. So, you know, it, it's, it's relationships and wanting the silent film to survive in a general sense. Um, and film restoration is extremely important. And there are certain films that are on my hit list and certain films that are on James' hit list. But the important thing is that someone does them. Right. And, uh, you know, you, you can't do all of them. So, you know, we have our sights on a couple of other things at this point, which we can't yet discuss. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, London after midnight, obviously. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, we, we, we have the camera negative. Right. And then we're reshooting Napoleon. Right. That might just be easy. Yes.
That was the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra playing vintage themes according to the original cues for the Johnstown Flood from 1926. The two scheduled screenings will be linked in the show post at nitrateville.com and watch in the silent screenings thread for future screenings as they're announced. Where's Professor Tuttle? He's been kidnapped. That's why we sent for you. Kidnapped, eh? What's the old bird look like? Here is a picture of Professor Tuttle. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Now listen. listen. Uh, you tell him. My name is Mo. How are you? Fine, thanks. My name is Mo. In Pig Latin, that's Ome. My name is Larry. Now what's that in Pig Latin? Ome. Oh. It's Harry Lay. Boy, are you umday. Oh, you mean I'm umday in pig language? You're umday in any language. Oh, thank you. <laughs> If you want to name the ultimate winners of the vintage film era, it's tough to think of anyone who surpasses the Three Stooges. Relatively low-budget comics in their day, now they're known to kids who never heard of Clark Gable or Greta Garbo. Take that! Besides young and formerly young fans, they have a functioning fan club and their own museum, the Stoogeum, outside Philadelphia. Stoogeum founder Gary Lassen is also the author of a new work of Stooge scholarship, A Tour de Farce, The Complete History of the Three Stooges on the Road, chronicling a half-century of live performances by the Stooges. I spoke with Lassen about how he became a custodian of the Stooges' memory. So I come to Ambler, Pennsylvania, which I assume is a suburb of Philadelphia. Yes. Okay. And uh, I encounter this thing called the Stoogeum. What What do I encounter as I get there? Uh, you're going to encounter a place that uh, if the Stooges were still alive, they'd be proud of. <laughs> uh, you're going to get to a place that if you were a Stooges fan – uh, you would want your ashes scattered over it when you die. <laughs> that was the let's put it this way: that was the mission of the Stoogeum. Whether it was successful or not, uh, the visitors will have to be the judge. But uh, I believe it's been fairly successful because it's been very well received. Uh, you're basically going to see e pluribus stooge, which is anything, <laughs> everything stooges. Um, you know, if the stooges' likenesses are on it, it's going to be there in the Stoogeum. Um, so there's no lack of stuff. You can spend quite some time looking at all kinds of posters and dolls and statues and uh, costumes from the films, props, watch films on the screens, and uh, you know just have one heck of a stew time there. All right, so I open the door, and what do I hear? Well, you hear, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> uh, hear it in a little bit better three-part harmony that I just provided. Uh, I tried to get in touch with my inner stooge there and probably failed miserably, but uh, <laughs> listeners get the idea uh, that that's what they would hear. And, um, you know, when I when I put the museum together, I really thought that that has to be the first thing that uh, visitors hear when they walk into the building. And it was actually quite some feat to uh, to pull it off, So because we didn't want people hearing the hello, hello, hello when they left the building. Uh, so we had to come up with some technical, uh, trickery to make it work only when people entered the building. And I, I think it, we pulled it off pretty good. Hello. 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 <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And then the memorabilia, how did you come into 
acquiring all this stooge memorabilia? Well, I've been collecting since the early 1980s and uh, thousands and thousands of pieces, and each one has a different story. Uh, back when I started, the collecting scene was way quite different than it is today. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will recall back in those days when there was no eBay, uh, you actually had to go places and do some legwork to to find stuff. Uh, you know, you would go to a comic book show to look for comic books, a record show to look for records, an autograph show for autographs. Uh, there were a lot of shows back in the day, and that's how you made personal contacts and found stuff. And a typical day would be going to a comic book show, looking through boxes of comic books, Batman, Superman, X-Men, oh, a Stooges comic. Oh, I have this one. And I would spend, <laughs> the, spend the whole day, you know, at the comic book show, and I'd come home with one $5 comic. Right. You know, but. but while I was at the show, I left my name with the guy who said, you know, he comes across stuff from time to time and he'd call me if he would find something. And sure enough, he'd call me, uh, you know, so I, I started getting my name put out there. And uh, I found what was very useful was if the guy was asking ten dollars for his comic book, I paid him ten dollars, which was outrageous. No one else paid with the guy was asking. Everyone said, how about five? How about six? Right. Uh, found this was a, an effective technique because when he did get something Stooges in next time, I was the first person that got the call. I was sure. the first person at the call because I didn't try to nickel and dime him. I was willing to pay a fair price, especially for items that were rare. Uh, and I saw pretty early on that if you wanted to have the best stuff, if you wanted to have the really rare stuff, you couldn't nickel and dime. You couldn't be chintzy. You had to pay. In fact, sometimes you had to overpay right. because that's what it takes to get the stuff. If you just want to have a lot of stuff that everybody else has common stuff, then fine. You can get stuff on the cheap and, and put your collection together that way. But I really had no intention of reselling the stuff. And so I really didn't need to get it on the cheap. I wanted the, the, the good stuff and the best stuff. And uh, this was the approach that I took. All right. So, yeah, tell me some of the highlights of the collection. <laughs> uh, well, see, everybody, not all collectors are different. I mean, for some people, I would say the movie posters would be the, the highlight. I got a lot of one-sheet movie posters from the 1930s and 40s, and those posters from the 30s are so rare that some of them, uh, the ones that I have are the only ones known to exist. Uh, okay. You know, I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners collect some of this old uh, movie paper, and, uh, you know, the stuff from the 30s and typically didn't survive. It got thrown out. It got recycled during the war. A lot of these posters are very, very rare. Um, I got a ton of toys and games from the 50s and 60s from the year when I was growing up. Uh, you know, I had these dumb little 29-cent toys that we actually played with. Um, so I've got tons of those. And uh, I've got a lot of personal stuff. Um, I befriended a lot of the relatives of the Stooges. And uh, many of them, you know, needed money from time to time. And they'd call me to sell off stuff. So I've got all kinds of uh, cool personal memorabilia from the Stooges. Driver's licenses and studio ID cards and things like that. Uh, you know, Moe's studio ID card with his thumbprint on the back. I mean, nobody's got Moe's thumbprint. A lot of people have Moe's <laughs> autograph. autograph. He didn't sign. He signed for everybody. But I don't know anybody else that got that has most thumbprint. Um, so there's all kinds of cool stuff like that, and uh, depending on what your interest might be, um, you know, you, I have a whole floor dedicated to Stooges artwork. Uh, people who did all kinds of different depictions uh, of the Stooges, some literal, but most uh, kind of far out zombie Stooges and things <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, a Greenwich Stooges, a Hippie Stooges, uh, just all kinds of different uh, people's takes on the Stooges. Some people just spend an hour just looking at this crazy artwork that I've got up on the uh, on the top floor. Um, so it really would depend on your interest, but there's there's all kinds of stuff there to cut across all kinds of uh, collecting genres, so to speak. Yeah, now, now you're 
personal collection to the Stooges I thought was was pretty interesting. Tell me about that. How you became personally connected to the Stooges by uh, uh, your well, wife. I always liked the Stooges as a kid because when I came home from school, you know, in the early 60s, there were only three TV channels at that time. And one of the channels had the Stooges. So a, fully a third of the airwaves you know, we're occupied by the students. Um, but I liked a lot of stuff. I didn't, I didn't collect them or anything, but uh, fast forward, I was a graduate student. I was dating this girl and she let on that she was related to somebody famous, but she, she didn't want to tell me who it was. Like she was embarrassed almost uh, to tell who it was. So I finally, you know, cajoled out of her that she was related to Larry Fine of the three stooges. And she was a bit embarrassed because she wasn't proud of him. You know, she was uh, afraid of her uncle Larry, truthfully, growing up uh, as a little girl. Uh, the students hit each other and poked each other, and um, that really scared her. When Uncle Larry came to visit, in fact, the uh, the family had to tell her that Uncle Max was coming to visit because otherwise she got terrified when Larry came, but she was not terrified of Uncle Max. So uh, they pulled this ruse on her for years, um, you know, when he used to come to visit. Uh, but anyway, I found out that she was related to uh, Larry Fine. And the way she was related is that her grandfather and Larry were brothers. Uh, so we were dating and Larry Fine was dead at this point. But her grandfather was, I won't say he was the spitting image of Larry, but he was very, very reminiscent of Larry because his voice, Larry, you know, Larry had a very, very distinctive voice. It was very easily right. gravelly, that Philadelphia, you know, accent. Oh! I can't see. I can't see. What's the matter? I got my eyes closed. Oh. And, and Mo Feinberg, his brother, uh, had that same gravelly voice. And interestingly enough, uh, Larry's brother was Morris Feinberg, but he called himself Mo. So Larry spent his whole life surrounded by Mo. By <laughs> Mo's, yeah. <laughs> either Mo Howard it was either Mo Howard or his brother Mo Feinberg. Yeah. Um, but uh, Mo, Mo Feinberg um, had two daughters and all granddaughters. He had no grandsons. And uh, at that point, my grandfathers had passed away. So we bonded very, very closely. And um, he was writing a book about his brother. He was so proud of his brother, Larry. Uh, he was writing a book about him. I, I hated the title. It was called My Brother Was a Movie Star. But uh, he, he eventually changed the title to Larry the Stooge in the Middle. And um, you know, he just adored Larry. And, and uh, he wasn't he was a lector. But he had an oddball comic book, an oddball record, and things like that. And uh, that's really how I got started collecting. He started showing me his, his stuff. And I thought, wow, I'm going to go see if I can find some Stooges stuff. And it was a great hobby because um, it was hard to find. You know, a collector doesn't want to find stuff too easily. But it was out there. Like I said, it cut across so many different collecting uh, genres that uh, it was much more interesting than collecting baseball cards, which is all I had ever collected. <laughs> so, and you're the head of the fan club. The official Stooges fan club. Tell me how that yeah. happened. So, so Mo Feinberg, uh, my wife's grandfather, had been running the club, uh, you know, in his 80s. Uh, when he passed away in 1986, uh, it looked like that was going to be the end of the fan club. Uh, however, I started going through the mail that had built up uh, shortly before his death and after his death. And I started reading the letters that the fans had written to him. And I was really struck by the fact that uh, almost every letter said, you know what, your newsletter is the only thing I look forward to getting in my mailbox. It's always full of bills and junk mail. But when <laughs> I see the three journal in there, my, it just brightens up my day. And, you know, I've loved the students ever since I can remember. And it just struck a chord with me that it would be a shame. You know, these people were so passionate about their love for the Stooges. And it would just be a shame to let it die out. 
let me see if I can keep it going. Let me see if I can try to keep the fan club going. So I had no idea what I was going to be writing about. I mean, the students had been dead for years. They're not making any films. They're not going out on tour. You know, what am I possibly going to write about? I had no idea. Um, so I, I put out a newsletter haphazardly and I wrote to the members a message and said, look, I need help. Send me some stuff. Send me some articles. Send me some photos. And what happened was it was like, you know, when the starting quarterback goes down, and the rest <laughs> of the team, rest of the team rallies around the backup. They just ra- they raise their level of, you know, they, they raise their level of play. So that's exactly what happened. The members sort of rallied around me. They sent articles. They sent photographs. I had a couple guys step up and volunteer to be writers. They were really good writers. They had no outlet for their stuff. Um, and I provided one and it was a very good mutual relationship. And, um, here it is, 2023, 1986, however many years that is, I'm still doing it. Huh. And the students are still not going out on tour. They're still not making any films, but we've still come up with things to write about and researching, you know, the, the places that they played, the places where they filmed, the supporting players that worked with them. Uh, so we're still, we're still writing about all that stuff, all that good old stuff from the good old days. And you now have published the Stugium's first book. It's out that there's, there's been a void in the uh, students' bookmark, and none, nothing's come out in the last 10 years. And there was also a void in their history. Uh, and I'll tell you what prompted this book is that I was standing in line back in the late 1990s, uh, and someone was wearing a Rolling Stones uh, T-shirt. that uh, It was a Steel Wheels tour shirt, commemorating their Steel Wheels tour. And it listed all the places they had been, Chattanooga, March 18th, Mobile, March 19th. Uh, and this tour had taken place 10 years ago. I thought, wow, this is great. The Stones have record every place they went on that tour. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if the students, you know, had something like that, you know, and of course. So I just sort of tucked it away. A few weeks later, I saw another person wearing a t-shirt, concert tour sheet, but a t-shirt, but it was for a totally unknown group, totally unknown group. And I thought every group must have this. Every group has their concert <laughs> history documented. Why don't the students? That's totally unfair. The students perform for 50 years on the road and this group performed for 50 days on the road, yet their whole history is documented. So uh, just for fun, no intention of writing a book, I, I opened an Excel spreadsheet, a blank spreadsheet. And I said, I'm going to go through my collection and start just for fun, compiling the dates of where they were and when they were there. So I started out just going through my own stuff, my playbills, my programs, ticket stubs, the back of photos. And I started compiling some dates. And this was a really, really fun research project. It was almost like a crossword puzzle. It was hard at the beginning. None of the blanks were filled in. But as I got a critical mass and I had the first two letters here in the last three, I was able to start filling some blanks together on my own. So, for example, say I saw they were in Cleveland the first week of May, in Philly the third week of May. Where were they this week? I looked at a map. Pittsburgh is right in between the two. So I'd go to the Library of Congress go to microfilm, look for the Pittsburgh newspapers that week. Sure enough, that's where they were. So I was able to fill in some blanks that way. And by the way, I mentioned Library of Congress because when I started doing this, there were no newspapers available uh, you know, online or digitized. You couldn't just sit at home and type right. in students back results. You actually had to do some work. Um, so I would make that three-hour trip and down to D.C. to the Library of Congress because they had on microfilm uh, all the major city newspapers uh, and that was a really, really helpful source to document the date, you know, the times and the places and all that. The other thing I did was I reached out to the members of the Three Students Fan Club that I was president of for help with the project. 
and they couldn't wait to send me copies of all the stuff they had in their collections, which I added to my database. Uh, some of them just had stories. They said, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I went to the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto, and I don't remember the day. So I would make notes of it, you know, and just keep the information. And sometimes it languished for years until I could verify it or, or piece it up with something. Uh, but that kind of stuff was very, very helpful. Uh, the biggest help was the digitization of newspapers and being able to access stuff online from home 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have done this book, you know, without it. Um, and that really gave me access to a ton of information, a ton of newspapers. Um, but I really, you know, I, that the stones t-shirt, uh, you know, it left no, no stones were unlisted. Well, I left no stones unturned and just searching <laughs> for this um, a couple other things I did, I started paying, um, you know, not only for these, um, uh, subscriptions to online newspapers, um, I found that I could get help from ask a librarian features that a lot of libraries had, you know, for a small fee in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the librarian there would do some research for you. I also found there were uh, local historical societies that were more than happy to try to do research. These were history buffs that only wanted, you know, research to do. Uh, and if, if you threw stuff their way, they were they were more than happy to help. Um, the biggest break, I would say, which really uh, I couldn't have maybe not finished this book, was the Mo Howard estate auction, which took place about three uh, three years ago. Mo Howard saved everything. He saved everything. And uh, about four years ago, there was an auction of all of his stuff that he had saved. And so much was in there relating to personal appearances and where they had played and contracts from their things. And, uh, you know, he had written letters home from uh, the, on hotel stationery, which gave information about what cities they were in, what hotels they stayed in. Uh, it was a veritable uh, treasure trove of, of information. And that that was really the final the final piece of the puzzle for me that enabled me to fill in a lot, a lot of blanks and, and really complete this book. So that's the short story. The short version of the story. You know, were there just like weird dead spots where you knew they must have been somewhere, but you couldn't find them for a while or anything like that? Well, those spots still exist. Uh, as I mentioned in my book, I think I found 90 to 95 percent of the appearances. Uh, there's some that we'll never know about because they did a lot of uh, I'll, I'll call them goodwill stops, like visits to hospitals and military bases and things like that that were not publicized. Uh, so there's no way to really find out about them unless a photo turns up from, you know, a hospital visit that's dated on the back with some information or something like that. Uh, appearances that they made at the military bases were often not open to the public. And so there was no need to advertise them. And uh, if you w weren't on the base, you didn't know anything about the show. So those are the kind of shows that I, I, I'm not going to ever find out about. Uh, but I think there were some small town appearances, you know, that we, we just don't know about one night stands here and there. Um, but when they did go on the road for 12, 14, 16 weeks at a time, they went on the road to work. They didn't take weeks off. They, they just about every day was accounted for unless it was a travel day. You know, they had to spend time on the train, which was the typical means of travel back then. So, uh, days or two off back then were typical, uh, typically travel days. Uh, in my book, if there's a week off in the middle of a three month tour, it's probably the week that I couldn't figure out where they were. It's not that they were taking a week off. Yeah, it's always kind of amazing to me. I mean, I, I'm originally from Kansas, and I'll see, you know, like people I think of as big stars, you know, Buster Keaton or whoever, you know, appearing in some 
tiny little town that barely has like a gas station and a dairy queen at this point. And yet, you know, here major vaudeville players just, you know, passing through and doing their doing their act in, you know, Schmunkville, Kansas and then moving on to the next place. Uh you know, just over the course of their 50 years, they played every seedy divey theater to the grandest of vaudeville palaces. They did, they did it all. They started out, you know, at the seedy places. Uh, they made it to the Palace Theater in New York, which was the dream of every vaudevillian. They, they, they played, uh, you know, at the Palladium in London. They played at the, at the major world's greatest vaudeville places. But then by the end of their careers, they were playing at, at circuses and they were playing at, uh, you know, Little, little, like you said, little podunk uh, universities, little small towns and uh, fairs and um, towns that had less than a thousand people living in them. Um, so they did big, little, and everything in between. Yeah, I mean, I was looking, you know, through the the book and the the different kind of venues that they played. Did you see? I imagine the big trend is simply that they were they were like vaudeville performers in say the 30s or the 40s but after a certain point they're really playing for the kids. You know, they're familiar to kids and in fact yeah. you talk about how they they pretty much only performed on the weekends cuz kids were in school. So well they had to reinvent their act uh in the 1960s because during the 30s and 40s uh like you said they were playing in vaudeville theaters. Uh, typically, the shows started at nine o'clock at night, ten o'clock at night. Uh, they did some blue material that was probably not appropriate for uh, children. So when they got re-released to television, um, you know, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, they sort of had to re-gear their act uh, for the children, and that meant doing shows during the daytime, uh, you know, during the summer months. Uh, so kids could attend and uh, they started instead of doing theaters, they did, you know, circuses and outdoor fairs and venues like that uh, that were outdoor because most of the time it was summer when kids were off from school. Any other kind of trends you notice in how they played around the country? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by trends. I mean, one thing interesting is that their their acts really remained remarkably similar uh over the 50 years you know the uh the changes in the act were very evolutionary not revolutionary um they, they did a lot of hokum in the beginning years and they did a lot of hokum at the end yeah <laughs> you know a, a good word for what happened in their live act because remember their live act was quite a bit different than what we see on film uh, you know, they didn't have the luxury of any special effects. They didn't have any uh, supporting players to bounce off of, only very minimalistic sound effects. So stripped of all that other stuff, uh, by necessity, the stage act was, was different than the, uh, you know, than the film act. Um, and like I said, it evolved slowly over the years. They had the same stock, 20, 25, 30 uh, bits and routines, uh, never did them in the same order. Never, but they, the other two students would follow Moe's lead, and each night they would do the same bits, but just uh, you know, tossed around in a different jumble. Yeah, I mean, any anything in particular about their act? Is there like a famous stage bit that never made it to the movies or anything like that? I don't know if there's anything that didn't make it to the movies. I mean, one of the interesting things that I did learn is that, um, you know, instead of like the typical rock group, which would uh, work out their songs in the studio, practice the song in the studio and then record it and then go out live and perform it live. The students did it the other way. They perfected the stuff live and then translated onto film because they knew what stuff live had worked because they had they'd gotten the audience reaction. So they sort of did the stuff 
backwards. Um, uh, the Maharaja routine, which is one of the famous routines that the Stooges did with uh, Curly plays sort of a blind Middle Eastern Raja, and he's throwing knives all over the place where he doesn't know where he's throwing them. Uh, they started doing that on stage before it was ever put on film. So, um, like I said, sort of the reverse of what uh, typically you would think they would have done. You like to talk to that people? Sit down. In in the history of the Stooges, uh, how long did they did they keep at it? How long were they out there performing? Uh, the Stooges were performing from when they were born to all the when they got. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Mo and Larry left home at early ages to perform. Uh, that's what they loved doing. They liked being out on the road. Uh, they liked being in front of audiences. And um, truthfully, they really didn't know when to quit, like many athletes and entertainers who uh, keep going past their prime. That's all they knew. Uh, and so they kept doing it. The Stooges' careers on film was over. So then they got reinvented as a kids act in the 60s. And then, uh, you know, even after Larry had his stroke where he couldn't perform anymore, he still performed. Yeah, <laughs> he still he went, he went to high schools and he told his stories and showed films and answered questions. Uh, it wasn't performing like he had done in the 1930s, but he wanted to be in front of an audience. He liked telling the story. He liked, you know, he, he, he same thing with Mo. You know, it's um, that's what they knew. That's what they did. They liked having people, you know, in, in uh, audiences. They liked to perform, yeah. uh, and they did it as long as they could. Yeah, if I think of Mo in that period, I see him on the Mike Douglas show. That you know, that's uh-huh. the kind of thing that I remember him doing into the seventies. So, yeah, he did. Uh, I don't know four or five of those Douglas shows, and um, but while he came to Philadelphia, he did the, most of those shows in Philadelphia. That was taped in Philadelphia. He did some other personal appearances when he came to town. So uh, he would do some shows at the. Uh, TLA Cinema here and a couple in New Jersey where, um, you know, he would show films, he would answer the questions and, uh, you know, maybe give an audience member a, a pie in the face if they were lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is there is there a Holy Grail Stooges item that you know of that you'd love to add to the collection? Well, I, the, whole, the Holy Grail item is probably the item I don't know about that exists. That's <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, like maybe if Curly wrote a letter home from camp or something, you know, crazy. <laughs> uh, you know it'd be something like that we don't we don't know about. Um, there's no there's no item out there that I, I, look. I've got so much stuff. There's no single item out there that um, gotta have. But yeah, there, there there's probably something out there we don't know about that just wild and wild crazy. Um, and you know. It'll turn up someday. It's crazy how stuff you know keeps turning up, and you think all these you know lost films are still turning up, and collectibles we we had no idea about turning up, and uh, so yeah, it can still happen. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Things like soup to nuts that have turned up with you know what is it Ted Healy, and then it's Mo, Larry, and Shemp, I think. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, Not that's like- one that was lost for a long time, but has has been found. Yeah, uh, there's there's one or two that are quote lost, um, but who knows? Um, stranger things have happened. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So your book is a tour de farce, the complete history of the Three Stooges on the road. Finally. And yeah, it covers 1929 to 1969. 
Um, all right, and the Stugium is open by appointment. That's correct. And you get a lot of you know, a pretty good attendance there. Ki- kids know who they are. Um, typically, kids don't know who they are, but if they have a good set of parents, they'll learn. A Tour de Farce, The Complete History of the Three Stooges on the Road, by Gary Lassen, is available from the Stoogeum. Links for the book and the museum will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Robert Harris, James McCoskey, and Gary Lassen, and to Ben Urish. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And you know what no one has done for a while? Written us a review at Apple Podcasts. We're not asking to be flooded with them, but a couple of new ones would be nice. Thanks. Thanks.